morning. Good to see you all this morning. I want to invite you to join me uh, in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I was doing that for my own good. I actually spoke out loud what I was thinking as I was trying to find out where this was. Um, the book of Numbers. We're going to look at uh, three different passages of Scripture this morning. Somewhat of a um, just a truth-oriented message for our benefit. And the next couple of weeks, there's just a few thoughts on my heart that uh, the Lord has given us a little bit of a break before we go into Colossians, which will be our next uh, verse-by-verse study. But there's just a few truths that God has been working on me that I feel like are just important for us to, to consider and to pray about and to, to learn from the truths that um, God has for us. And so I just want to say before I get into the message this morning that I just appreciate how things went last week with Mike um, being willing to come in and fill the pulpit for us. He was able to watch the service on, on, uh, online and it was just a great uh, sermon. He did a great job and just so willing, called him on Saturday night after hearing about Michael's uh, accident and he was just he was not in his own pulpit that day, and he was very willing to just step in and fill that role, and, and we appreciate that. That's why I'm wearing a suit this morning, because I, I had to at least be as nicely dressed as he was last week. Uh, just, I'm just kidding. I, I actually bought this suit, and I figured I needed to at least wear it once or twice before. I don't normally wear a suit, for those of you who have been around a long time. And so, but I do appreciate him filling in and then just everybody else that was here um, taking their part and doing what needed to be done to, for the church service to flow well. And from what I've heard, it was just a really blessed service. So thank you so much for that. appreciate you being here this morning. And I pray that you'll um, receive a blessing from God's word this morning as we address, um, address more of a truth than a specific text although we will press on one text to give us some practical things to to help us learn and grow. The title of this morning's message is Preserving God's Blessing. And on your, your, if you have a sheet, if anybody didn't get a sheet but would like one, just raise your hand. I think we probably have some extras. We got uh, one in the back row that would like a sheet if we've got an extra one. Okay, we got one that's coming coming your way, Heather. So it looks like they're... Someone's going to give you one of their second ones. Right there in the back row. There you go, Ed. All right. So if you want to take, take a pen or a Sharpie and just mark through um, preserving God's blessing on your life and just change it to preserving God's blessing in this life. And that really kind of more captures the thoughts of what we're going to address this morning. The question of the morning is... Can, God, uh, can a Christian forfeit the blessings of God in this life? And another way of stating that question is, can a, Christian, can a Christian's life be cursed by God? Can a Christian's life be cursed by God? And so it's a, it's a really, I think, important truth that we're going to address. And I think maybe some of you have, are in that boat this morning where you know that you're a follower of Jesus, but you just feel like you have none of, his, his hand of favor is not on you. You feel like he maybe has, um, you know, the, the word, it's interesting because I, I don't even want to use the word cursed, that God's curse would be on a person's life. It just, it just seems kind of like a far stretch to say that God would curse his own children, Right? So I only use that word this morning because it's the word that the Scripture uses. And so I don't want I, I to be afraid of using a, a term that God uses when he talks about the things that he does. I, I, I am afraid to use it, but I don't want to be afraid to use it just because of where our culture is at. So I am going to say and use that term throughout the sermon that uh, can God curse a Christian's life? And I hope the answer to that question will be helpful for you. Note what I did not ask. Note that I did not ask, can a person lose their eternal salvation? Okay? That's not the question that we're dealing with this morning. The Bible is very clear that a person cannot lose. Once, once you're saved, you're saved forever. And so that is not a, per, that is not a, a part of this 
uh, endeavor. That's not a question that we will answer this morning, nor is it a question that any of us should have. Um, the Bible is very clear. The, Bible, uh, the Lord tells us in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And how long is eternal life? And how long is never perish? Okay. So if you don't have eternal life and you perish at some point, then you have missed the point of this text. The Bible says that those who believe in Christ have everlasting or eternal life and they will never perish. And no one is able to snatch them out of my, father, out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So the question is not, can you lose your salvation? We don't need to address that. That's not something that many, it's not, I I would say that some of us wrestle with that question, but it's not a question that we need to wrestle with because the Bible is clear on that truth. However, the question is this morning, can a Christian forfeit God's blessing in this life? Can a person be saved and not be in the favor of God right now? And that's the question that we will seek to answer. And when we answer that question, then we will look at, if the answer is what I know it is because I've already done the work, um, then we're going to answer the question, how can we preserve God's blessing in our life? How, the title of the message, how can I preserve God's blessing in this life? To answer this question, we're going to look at an Old, an Old Testament narrative, Numbers chapter number 22, and we'll look at another portion of Scripture. But really, if you have time, read Numbers 22 to Numbers 25. The Old Testament um, story is the children of Israel are getting ready to enter into the promised land, and they're making their way through the wilderness and coming to the end of their 40-year wandering into the wilderness, and they're getting ready to enter into the promised land, and um, the last obstacle that's there in front of them, well, let me say it this way, we're going to start with this Old Testament narrative of God's blessing on his people as they enter into the promised land. And many of the nations around them and many of the enemies of the Lord were aware of the fact that God had put his hand of blessing on the children of Israel. As a matter of fact, as they journeyed through the wilderness, they often experienced great victories over enemies that were far more significant than they were, but they would experience great, and, uh, great victories because God would have his hand of blessing on them. And they would be overcoming enemies. They would be overcoming obstacles that we would think, here's a wandering group of people, right, going through other people's lands and yet experiencing extraordinary victory because God had his hand of favor on them. And anytime God has his hand of favor on us, there is extraordinary victories experienced, amazing victories experienced. And as a Christian, we, we can correlate that to, to the struggles that we face in life. We're not a bunch of people walking through people's lands with guns and, and weapons and trying to overcome those lands. At the same time, we are a group of people that are, march, that are marching through life, and there are lots of attacks coming on us from the enemy who is the devil, and they are spiritual attacks. And they are, they are attacks on our emotional stability. They're attacked, attacks on our, our, our biblical understanding. There are attacks on our relationships. There are attacks on us in so many different ways. And so we are marching through life, and we do have a real enemy. And anytime God has his hand of favor on us, right? Anytime God has his hand of favor on us, we, we win, don't we? And we don't win because we're powerful or capable. We win because he's powerful and and he is capable. So it is absolutely important if you're going to win in this life, if you're going to win in the Christian life, it's absolutely important that you have God's hand of favor on you. It's absolutely 100% important. So the Moabites, who were the last obstacle before the children of Israel actually entered into the promised land, They understood that God's hand of blessing was upon the Israelites. As a matter of fact, we'll read a text here in a moment in chapter number 22 that the king of Moab realized and watched and saw the previous victories and realized, hey, they're getting ready to come through my land, and guess what they're going to do when they come through my land? Well, they're going to do the same thing that they did with the Amalekites, and they're going to do the same thing that they did with, with other nations where they went through their land and they won. And so the king of the king of Moab is is fearful. The people of Moab are fearful of what do we do? What do we do with these people that are going to come through our land? 
So what does Balak, Balak is the king of Moab at this time, what does Balak do? Well, Balak contrives a plan in which the children of Israel or the Jews are cursed and, he, and, and his chances of being victorious over them are increased. So Balak decides, you know what, We've, I've got to find a way to overcome these people. I can't overcome them with God's favor on them, so I have to find a way to get them to be cursed. If I can get them to be cursed, then I can win over them. Right? And so as long as God, if God's hand is lifted from your relationship, from your family, from anything in your life, once God lifts his hand from you, then you are vulnerable to being defeated. Right? Is that true? Once he lifts his hand, you're vulnerable. You're now at the... Um, you're now in battle of your, of your own, and you have to overcome on your own, and you will uh, unfortunately never win. So King Balak des- desires to beat the Jewish people, to keep them from entering the promised land, to keep them from taking his land, and so he contrives a plan in which he curses the uh, children of Israel, and then he beats them, he has victory over them in battle. His plan includes calling a man named Balaam, who was a prophet of the Lord. And it's interesting because if you study the text here in verse number 7, it seems to imply that um, they saw Balaam as like a witch doctor. Matter of fact, the, verse 7 says that they gathered together the money to, uh, to pay for a divination, which was like a, an act of somebody casting a spell on somebody. So they didn't really see Balaam as a man of God, they saw Balaam as kind of a, a, witch, a witch doctor who would cast a spell on a group of people and they, would, and they would be then powerless, right? And so they're expecting, uh, Balak is expecting Balaam to come and cast a spell on, on him. Balaam says to him, I will come and do it, or we'll get to the story here in a minute, but I can't tell you or do anything that God doesn't allow me to do. In other words, Balaam understands that his authority is a divine authority, and he needs God's help to, or God's um, approval to do what he wants to do. So let me just read to you guys, just real quick, follow along, if you will, in Numbers 22. The Bible says, Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to um, to the Amorites, And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. And Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This this horde will now lick lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at this time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river, in the, third, in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come up out of Egypt. They come, they cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite of us. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So obviously Balaam had a reputation of being able to bless certain people, and it, was, and it happened, and to be able to curse certain people, and it happened. Balak didn't really understand how that came about, but he thought, well, this guy has obviously blessed people and it's been blessed and cursed people, so I want to take advantage of that and I'm going to bring Balaam in and I'm going to honor him and I'm going to give him great money so that he will curse the children of Israel, which will ultimately lead to my victory. Now, most of you know this story. You may not remember all of the details of it, but most of you know this story. Balaam ends up going to Balak But only after wrestling with the Lord, the Lord tells him, don't go. And um, Balaam says, well, I I, want to go. And he prays, and the Lord says, no. And then he prays again another time, and and the Lord says, that's fine, go. You know, kind of like it 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 wasn't the Lord's desire necessarily that Balaam go and do this, but Balaam's heart was set on doing it. 
He was set on the gain um, that would come from this process that he was going through. So Balaam goes to Balak after arguing with God. He argues with a donkey, okay? It's a true story. He actually has a conversation with a donkey. The donkey makes him upset, and he starts to yell at the donkey, and then the donkey talks back to him. And then he argues with an angel of the Lord, and he experiences a, the donkey. <laughs> the story is so funny to listen, to think about, but, you know, the donkey, you know, if you think about it for a moment, I can, I can literally put myself on the donkey, right, and go into a place that I know I shouldn't be going, and the donkey just kind of stops, and then he just, he just slams my leg up against the rock next to me. Right? That's what happens to Balaam. The donkey just slams his leg up against the, the, side, the side rock here. Now, you know, Balaam's leg is, is all bruised or whatever you might want to do. And then Balaam just kicks the donkey and says, you know, go. Balaam is just really upset with this donkey right now. So then the donkey, the angel of the Lord is standing there the whole time, but Balaam can't see it, but the donkey can, which, which, is, which is a really good uh, analogy as well, right? Sometimes donkeys see more than we do. And so the donkey just sits down in the middle of the road. He's like, I ain't going anywhere. And so then Balaam just starts yelling at this donkey, just like we would do with our, our dog or whatever, right? Just starts yelling at this donkey, and the donkey talks back. And the amazing thing isn't that the donkey talked back to Balaam, but that Balaam then talks back to the donkey. It's like they're in this conversation now. It's like, all right, Balaam, we know you're out of your mind now because you're having a conversation with a donkey. But he, he has this conversation, and then, and then the Lord opens up his eyes. He sees the angel there. He realizes that, that uh, wow, okay, I, I probably should have done what the donkey did, or I'm glad the donkey stopped because the angel would have just killed me. And, um, and he says to the angel, what, what do you want me to do, basically? And the angel says to, um, the angel says to Balaam, go ahead and go. And again, after all of this, after all of the, and this is the way it is, isn't it? After, all, after the Lord says, no, 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 sends a donkey to talk to us, knocks our foot against the wall so we can't walk anymore, sits down in the middle of the road, and we ask the angel, do you want me to go? <laughs> It's like, no, I don't want you to go. Go back. But since Balaam wasn't, wasn't observant enough to figure out that God didn't want him to do what he was wanting to do, the Lord says, go ahead. And listen to me. There's a great lesson in that too. Because sometimes the Lord will let you do exactly what you want to do. Your heart's set on something, and he'll do everything in his strength to make it clear to you that it's not the right thing to do. And, and, uh, and you'll just keep pressing and pressing and pressing, and he'll just finally say, okay, that's fine, do it. Right? And then it ends up being a disaster, doesn't it? Just like this story. So Balaam gets to Balak. You guys know the story. And Balak says to Balak, the king takes Balaam to up on a high place and he, he points down to all these children of Israel in this valley. It's just a portion of them. And there, there, there's so many at this time that he can only show them a portion. And he says to, he says to Balaam, I, please curse these people. And because they're going to come up and they're going to take over and we don't want them to do that. And, and Balaam is, you know, he's, he's confused and he, he, he can't see past the dollar signs that are popping in front of his eyes. And so he's like, yeah, okay, well, whatever. So he's like, okay, build seven altars here. Let's make some sacrifices to the Lord. Let's get the Lord's attention through these sacrifices and then I'll pray to him and I will, um, and he will tell me what to do. And so Balak says, fine. So he has his men build these altars, and they, they build these altars, and, and uh, Balaam goes, and, and they make sacrifices to the Lord, and then um, Balaam goes to the Lord and prays, and the Lord says, no, you can't curse the people. As a matter of fact, he says, we're going to bless the people. So Balaam comes back to Balak, and he says, hey, the Lord won't let me curse them, so we're just, he said the Lord is going to actually bless them. So you can only imagine how, how Balak is feeling at this point. He's really not feeling having a great day. So they bless, they bless the children of Israel on that, in that moment. So then, so then Balak is really upset with Balaam. He's like, hey, I didn't pay you. I didn't bring you here to bless the people of Israel. I brought you here to curse them. And uh, Balaam says, hey, I told you I can't do anything that the Lord doesn't allow me to do. I just can't do it, I, I, you know. And I think allow is the right word because Balaam would do anything that the Lord allowed him to do. Obviously, that's why he's there, uh, right? It wasn't necessarily that he was meant to be there, but the Lord allowed him to go there. 
And so, um, so Balak says, all right, let's do this again. He takes him to another section. And I don't, I don't really, it, it doesn't, text doesn't really tell us why he takes him to different places. Maybe there was more. And he's like, hey, look, there's more. They're all going to come up here and they're going to destroy us all. And uh, Balaam's like, yeah, I get it. Let's pray. Let's do the same thing again. He gets the altars out and, you know, seven altars, makes sacrifices to the Lord and prays to God and says, God, can, you know, can we curse these people? And God says, no, we're not going to curse these people. We're going to bless them again. Because they were God's people, right? What does God do with his people? He blesses them, right? God blesses his people. We, we all agree with that. We all understand that, right? God blesses his people. So God blesses the children of Israel again. A third time, similar things happen. I think it's a little bit more unique where Balaam, I think, has kind of already said on, God's not going to let me curse them. And so I think he kind of does away with the sacrifices, pieces of it, and he's just like, all right, whatever. He prays to the Lord and comes back and they bless the children of Israel. And so finally, the end of, the, the end of the, that piece of the story is, is that three times Balaam goes to the Lord, seeks approval to curse the children of Israel, and, and God says no. And he turns that, that curse that, that Balaam wants to do on the children of Israel, he turns it into a blessing. And that's good to know, isn't it? That's encouraging for us as Christians. God blesses his children, right? It's encouraging to know. The Bible says, as a matter of fact, uh, relating to this same story in Deuteronomy chapter 25, the Bible says, for the, but the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. It's so encouraging to think about God's, God's blessing on the children of Israel, even if they were, they were wandering in the wilderness, right? They were under discipline at that time. But yet, even in the wandering in the wilderness, the Bible says that their clothes didn't wear out. He brought manna down from, he brought food down from heaven he had to bust open a rock to get water. I mean, who bust, who bust open a rock to get water out of it? Well, God does. So that there's never any question where that water came from. So the Lord says that he loved those people so much that he would not curse them. So it's clear from the story, it's clear from, the, from this point in the story that God was not going to curse his people. Both Balaam and Balak realized this. And so Balaam then gives a fourth, at the end of chapter number 24, Balaam gives a fourth blessing. He just says, here, I'm just, I can't curse them. He's just like, here's what they're going to end up being like. And he gives them a fourth blessing. And everyone, and everyone sighs, and everyone breathes a sigh of relief. And we can all breathe a sigh of relief that God blesses his children. Amen. It's encouraging to know that God, we would all say at this point in the narrative, we would all say that God does not curse his people. Even when his prophets come to him and plead with him to curse a people who are going to come in and take over a, a, a nation, God refuses to curse his people. And that's an encouraging thing to know. The problem is, is that the story isn't over. If you join me in chapter 25 of the same book, there's another piece to the story. In chapter 25 of this same, this is chapter 22 and 24, through 24 deal with the story that I just told you. In chapter 25, it says this, while Israel lived in Shatim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Who was Balak the king over? Moabites. So now they're starting to have intermarriage. They're starting to marry with uncircumcised Gentiles, which was totally against the call of God on the Jewish people. Even 2 Corinthians 6 tells us in our culture today, in our day and age, it says we should never intermarry with lost we should never even entertain connecting the idea of that which is evil and that which is good. There should be no connection there. And God had told the children of Israel that very thing. Do not intermarry with those lost nations. It will come to your demise. Listen to what he says. This, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Moab. This invited the people these invited the people to sacrifice to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. 
So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Okay, so we have idolatry and we have adultery, right? We have immorality and idolatry taking place in the children of Israel. A group of people up to this point to whom God will not, what? God will not curse. And the next phrase is, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel and Moses said to the children, to the um, judges of Israel, each of you kill those of this men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And we go down to verse number 20, or verse number nine. It says, nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000 people in one day. So what happened? What took place between I will not curse my people to the fear, fury, anger, the fiery anger of God, the hot anger of God rising up against them. I'm going to give you the answer. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. We're going to find out what happened. It's so interesting because in this narrative, this, this part of the narrative is left out. It's not given to us in the storyline. But at some point in Balaam's blessing the children of Israel at the command of God, Balaam pulls Balak aside and he says this to Balak. He says, Balak, I cannot curse God's people. But here's what he says. If you'll just get them to live sinfully, God will curse them. If you just get them to attach themselves to activities and events that God's curse is already on. In, in, in other words, God cannot curse his people. They're under his favor. But there are certain activities that God has already cursed. And what Satan knows is this. If he can attach you to an activity that God has cursed, he then curses you. Not because God is cursing you, because God has already cursed the activity that Satan has attached to you. You see, the reality of it is this morning is Satan has no say in the life of a believer. Satan has no power in the life of a believer. Satan can do nothing against the life of a believer. But what Satan can do is he can attach you to something that is cursed by God. And that's where we live as a nation. And that's where we live as a people. We've attached ourselves to forsaken things. And in attaching ourselves to those forsaken things, we now experience the curse of God. Is it because God has cursed us? No, God won't curse us. It's because God has cursed the things that we've attached ourselves to. And we now experience the curse of God because we've attached ourselves to things that are cursed by God. Listen to what he says in Revelation 2. And it's interesting because this is, we're, we're taught this thousands of years later, and we're taught this as a warning in the last days for the church to cleanse itself. Notice that. This is a warning in Revelation 2, just as we enter into the end of days, where the Lord is saying to the church, repent, so that God's favor can be on you again. Listen to what he says in Revelation 2.14. But I have a few things against you because you have, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. This is not a part of the story. We don't ever read about this in the Old Testament, yet we're reminded of it as the Lord is warning his church. We're reminded of the fact, or we're told the fact, that at some point in the narrative between Balaam and Balak, Balaam said to Balak, hey, 
Just get them to marry your people. Get your girls to go out there and to dress in modestly and inappropriately and attract the attention of the Jewish boys. Get your boys to go out there and pursue the Jewish women and the Jewish girls and, and intermarry with them. You do that and God will curse them. Get them to intermarry and then over years and years of being intermarried, make sure that your daughters and your sons draw them into worshiping their idols. Do that and then God will curse them. The Bible tells us in one day 24,000 people die, which was really just a picture of God's fierce anger against sin in which they had attached themselves to through these two sinful things. I want to invite you to one last passage of Scripture, which will get some practical truth. 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. This is such an interesting passage of Scripture because it literally recaptures for us these, this event. And it tells us from the church's perspective, how should we look at, how should we Uh, approach this idea of God cursing, not the eternal person, not the person, but God cursing the things that the people attach themselves to. And that the enemy, Satan, knows that the way to get a Christian cursed is not to get God to curse them. The Bible says that he makes accusations against us every day, and the blood of Christ is always laid at the altar and set, or is always on the altar saying that they're innocent, they're innocent, they're innocent. So what does Satan know is, is if he can just attach them to a sinful lifestyle, just get them to be unholy, get them to walk in sin, God curses the sin, and then they're cursed. This is why, folks, this is why Christian homes are falling apart. It's why Christian children are not walking with the Lord. It's why men struggle with pornography and sexual immorality. It's why women struggle with with their different struggles. It's why all of these things are happening. We connect ourselves to these things, and then we find ourselves ourselves a mess. Can I get get an amen? Amen. It's true. It's true. I'm not telling you anything that this this is straight out of God's word. We need to get this. So that we become a holy people again, a separated people, a people who says no to these types of things, knowing that it's going to cost. Listen, some of you are in the middle of the, of the, of the, of the expense of what you've chosen to live your life after. You're living in it right now. You say, Pastor John, that's me. I'm like, I know I'm a child of God, but man, I just don't have any of his blessings. I don't feel like he's, he cares. You probably have attached yourself to some things that you know are not right. And God isn't cursing you. He cursed those things already. And he tells you in his word, get away from those things. Separate yourself from those things because it's not going to be good for you in the end. So let's, 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 1 Corinthians 10. I want to just give you four thoughts this morning. Four truths from 1 Corinthians 10 that a New Testament Christian can learn about preserving God's blessing in this life. Number one, Okay, if you're taking notes, yes, a Christian can forfeit God's blessing in this life. Yes, a Christian can forfeit God's blessing in this life. Remember, this is not referring to them forfeiting eternal salvation, but yet forfeiting perhaps protection, forfeiting provision, direction, forfeiting the blessings of God on our families, the blessings of God on our finances, the blessings of God on our relationships. It is forfeiting something about God's goodness that we need to get through the day. Listen to what he says in the first few verses. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all went through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. They all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. So would we say these people are blessed? Would we say that these people are blessed based upon the text? They all, I mean, it's like not some of them. They all did all these things. And I stopped there for a reason because it says they all drank, they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was, was Christ. Are these believers? You drink from the you drink from the cup of Christ, you're a believer. 
They all drank from the cup of Christ. Listen to what he says next. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were led by the cloud. They passed through the Red Sea on dry land. They ate heavenly manna. They drank water from a rock that should never have happened. They experienced the sufficiency of Christ, yet God was not pleased with them. All of God's blessings upon them, yet God was not pleased for them. Is it possible? Yes. Number two, sin is the reason a Christian forfeits God's blessing. Sin is the reason that a Christian forfeits God's blessing. Watch what he says as we go on. Now these things took place as an example to us, the church, that we might not desire as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. In 24, 23,000 fell in the single day. This is the same story. It's just that they, they put a different number in the New Testament. Somebody else was counting, I guess. But this is the same story. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. You remember how they put Christ to the test? Remember how they did it? They joined forces with the Assyrians to defeat one of their enemies instead of trusting God to defeat their enemy. They tested God by joining forces to a human strength when God was supposed to be their strength. Do not put God to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Listen to what the Bible says in James 1, 14 through 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured away or enticed by his own desires. Then desires, when they are conceived, give birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. What we can note about Balaam is that Balaam didn't do anything that wasn't already in his heart to do. Balaam's sin was, in, was ingrained in his heart. He wanted to do that which was wrong. He wanted the gain, the Bible says, of ungodliness. And that's where sin, that's where sin roots. That's where sin lives. He gives us four different types of sins here. I think it's important to point them out. He calls first one is idolatry. It says that they rise up and they and they and they run around and play. And the idea of it is, is it's used several times in the New Testament to describe people living life without any reference or reverence to the person of God. Why do we pray before we eat? Why do we pray before we eat? Because we want to recognize that God is the supplier of that food. So we want to reference, reverence God in eating. When people go through life and they stop reverencing God in their eating, they're just one step closer to this idolatry. It's not just, listen to me, idolatry is not just bowing your knee to an idol. It's not bowing your knee to God. Meaning that we wake up in the morning and we do not consider God. And we put our clothes on and we do not consider God. And we go to work and we do not consider God. We do all of these things. We rise up and we go about life and we don't consider God. He calls this idolatry. You're connecting yourself to something that God has already cursed. The second one is immorality, which is just simply uh, sexual sin. It is sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage, sex with another partner that's not the one that God has given you in marriage. In this case, it was marrying another people that were not God's people. Immorality is something that God condemns. 
God condemns sexual immorality. Listen, we live in a culture that teaches that having sex before marriage or having sex outside of marriage or having sex with another partner that's not yours is okay. It's not okay. It is a defilement to God and his order. He has created sex for your pleasure, amen? He has, can I get some more amens than that? Okay, he has created sex for your pleasure and then he gave you a partner that he says covenant with this partner and that is who you can be with. It's not okay to have sex out. It's not okay for our children to have sex outside of marriage. It's not okay. It's not okay for them to mess around physically and pet. It's not okay. These things are not okay. My philosophy is with my kids is this. If I was doing what you're doing with another woman besides my wife, would it be okay? Therefore, there is something sexual to it. Amen? And you shouldn't be doing it until you're married. If they can do it with someone that they're not coveting with, then I can do it with somebody that I'm not coveting with. The rule doesn't change. There's no place for it. The devil has placed this on our culture because he knows God has cursed it already. You want to bring a curse on a culture, bring a culture to immorality. This is why our TVs are full of homosexuality, same-sex marriage, sex outside of marriage, uh, extramarital. You can't watch a show without seeing it. You don't think the devil doesn't know what he's doing? And what he's convinced us of is simply this. It's okay. I think you would be amazed if you went down to the, to the public school or even the Christian school and asked ask the kids that are in high school and say, hey, is, is, it, is it wrong to pet? Is it wrong to get in the back of the car and make out with your... You would find a, you would find a high percentage of kids would say, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. What are we doing? We're bringing a curse on our lives. And God doesn't want to curse his people. He doesn't curse his people. He curses the sins that we connect ourselves to. The the fuck one is testing God by elite alliancing. Listen, testing God by alliancing alliancing ourselves with things that displace God. Testing God by making an alliance with something that displaces God. In other words, is there something that we're trusting in that God wants us to trust in him for? That's the third sin. The fourth sin is grumbling against God and his leaders. They didn't just grumble against God, but they grumbled against Moses as well. And God sends um, a curse. God, God attaches a curse to it. So sin is what sin is what the devil is working to attach God's people to because the devil knows that God has cursed sin. And if he can just attach you to it, I mean, if you can just picture somebody wearing a white robe and they're just perfect and God has just blessed them, and then there's just this little demon that walks around with these little you know, paper clips and he just clips things to their, to their white robe. And he just clips this sin to it. And, this, and before you know it, they're, they're covered in these clippings of things that are cursed and then it seems like the person is cursed. Is the person cursed? That person is going to stand before God one day completely justified because they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Is the person's life cursed? It is. And they will see it in many, many ways. And they will feel it in many, many ways. Sin is the reason why Christians forfeit God's blessing And Satan is a master of connecting you to sin. What he does is, have you guys ever found, have you ever found things that are addictive that when they're first offered to you, they're offered at a very cheap rate? Like you can have them for almost free? I've never understood that. I've like, I've like heard of things like they, they will introduce this new thing maybe on the internet or something on television or something, and it's free! Like, whoa, yes, I love free things, right? But before you know it, it's not free and you can't live without it. What has the devil just done? He's just attached you to something that's going to cost you. And he's offered it to you at a very 
reasonable price because the devil is planning for the future. And he's going to destroy you if you're not careful. 1 John in chapter 5 talks about a sin that is unto death. Number three, there is comfort here in this text as well. He tells us this in verse number 10. You're very familiar with it. He says, he says, we must not put Christ to the test. Let's see here, um, verse number 13 actually. No temptation is overtaken you, but that which is common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So there's a comforting verse here just kind of punctured right into the middle to say this, the devil is going to tempt you to try to bring you into slavery to sin that God has cursed, therefore it will seem like God has cursed you. But he says this, the Lord will never allow you to be tempted above that you're able. So you can know this. Three things very, very quickly think about with me. Number one is your temptation, the temptations that you face in life are never outside of God's control. If God can say, I will never let you be tempted above that you're able, who is controlling those temptations? I didn't say who was authoring those temptations. Who is controlling those temptations? Who was allowing the temptation to happen? Because he is sovereign over all things, good and bad. He allows us to be tempted. He allows us to face challenges in our lives so that we might grow. But he never lets us face a temptation that's too big for us. So if you fall into temptation, it wasn't because you weren't up to the task. It's because you gave in to it. James 1 and 2 uses the same Greek word where it says, count it all joy when you fall or when you face various types of trials. It uses the word trial here. The actual word is the same. Because a temptation is a trial from God's perspective. That means every temptation that comes in your life, God allows it as a trial. Satan means it as a temptation. God allows it as a trial. God is in control of our temptations. Number two, your temptation is never bigger than you. Your temptation is never, let me say it this way, your temptation is never too big. The Bible tells us in 1 John 4, verse 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Whatever Satan is throwing at you to, to capture you, to imprison you to something that has already been cursed by God, listen to me, he is bigger than it and he is inside of you. Do you believe that? Seriously, do you believe that? Are you going to walk away from here today and when temptation comes knocking on your door, are you going to say to that temptation, you're not bigger? The third thing is, is your temptation is never without an escape. There's always an escape when you face temptation. God always gives us a way out. In other words, let me say it this way, the escape route is not the escape route is not the maturing route. The escape route is if you face temptation and you can't deal with it. There's a, you know, Joseph back in the Old Testament, he faced him, you know, he went into Potiphar's house where he worked every day. The, the woman comes in and she tries to seduce him and he doesn't sit there and, and say, hey, you know what, I'm bigger than this. I can overcome this. That He just ran, right? He just ran. She grabbed his coat and she tore it, and you, you guys all know the story, but the idea of it is, is that there are times in your, there are times in your Christian maturity that there isn't enough, there isn't, the, the growth thing is just not going to happen, so run. It's like, hey, I don't, I'm not, today is not growth day, today is run day. We need that. And sometimes we sit there, and we're, we're sitting in that moment where the temptation is just getting ready to grab a hold of us, and we just calculate, and we start thinking, oh, I can handle this, I can do this. And you know something? Ten minutes into that thing, and you're what? You're done. You already clicked. 
You already made the call. You already said the words. Your temptation is never without an escape. And then he lastly gives us three, uh, three, three instructions. How do we maintain God's blessing in our life? I think we can say honestly, according to what the scripture says, that God doesn't curse people that are his children, but God does curse, his, curse things that are attached to his people. And therefore, they lose blessings because they are attaching themselves to things that are cursed by God. I think we understand that. We can see that from our text. Sin is what Satan uses to get us to be the accursed of God. And, that, and there's comfort in knowing that. There is instruction the last thought this morning from our text as well. The Bible says um, three things, and I just want to give them to you. They're all three imperatives. They're, they're all commands. If you want to win in this, if you want to win in life, if you want to have God's hand of favor on you, just think about these three things. The first one is be discerning when you can't handle, or when you be discerning when you can handle temptation. He says, um, verse number 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, there's a danger for those of us who get to a point where we have arrived spiritually, where we feel like, I can, I can handle this now. That, that temptation no longer is a challenge for me. It might, it might be whatever challenge it might be, but you've gone through life and maybe you've matured some and you just start to think, yeah, I, I can handle this now. I can, I can handle a little bit of, you know, maybe watching something on television that I couldn't handle before or I can handle a little bit of these computer things that I couldn't handle before or maybe I can handle a little bit of the bottle that I couldn't handle before and, and we just start to dabble in these types of things again and we, and we're, and we, let, our guard, we let our guard down because we think that we, we've arrived. Here's what he says here. He just simply says... Be discerning when you think you've arrived. Be discerning when you think you've figured it out because it's at that moment when you're most vulnerable for falling. I would say this to you folks. The devil, the devil is very good at giving you a long leash to the point where you think you have arrived, which builds you up in pride and you think, you know what, I can handle this. I've heard it a thousand times. I can handle this. I can handle this. I can handle this. And all of a sudden, you start getting built up in your ability to handle that. And the next thing that you know, Satan has you like he had you three years ago. And you can't, um, and you look back and you say, I don't know, how did I get back to, to square one? And you know something that's interesting is that it takes literally a moment to go back to square one. It's just a moment. And you're right back to where you were years ago when you won. But now you've become trusting in yourself. And when you trust in yourself or you trust in a system, you, you put yourself to be vulnerable to sin because God will, not short, God will not share his glory with anyone. So don't let, listen, don't let your maturity lead to your laziness. Don't let your maturity lead to your laziness. Number two, be decisive when you can't handle it. Be discerning when you can handle it, but be decisive when you can't handle it. Here's what he says in verse number 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And this is like, okay, I can't, I can't handle it. I'm not going to learn from this. I'm not going to grow from this. So I'm just going to simply run. And the word literally means to run away from, to escape it carries with it the idea of disappearing. Like I'm there and temptation comes and I'm not there anymore. I love, I love the analogy, the picture that's there for us to see. It's like that is how quickly it happens. We see the temptation comes and it's as if we disappear. Right? That would be great, wouldn't it? Temptation comes and we just disappear. That's what he's telling them. Temptation comes, disappear because you can't handle it. And some of you are sitting here, in here today and you're, you're at square one where you've matured, you've matured and you just think, I, I got this. Some of, you have, some of you have already begun to start to dabble in things that you know are not good and you've even begun to increase in your dabbling because you think you got it under control. Listen to me. You will either destroy yourself or you will destroy someone else who can't handle what you're doing. Because it is, 
it in of itself is cursed of God. Be decisive. Run when you can't handle temptation. He tells Timothy, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, So therefore flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee youthful passions. He uses the word youthful there not because that means that they were young. It means that they weren't ready. They couldn't endure the temptation and they needed to get out. And some of us need to be there. The Bible tells us in Matthew 5, if your eye offends you, then do what? Do something extreme. You know, I tell people, I, you might laugh at this, but I, I counsel with people on, on somewhat of a regular basis that deal with pornography issues, and I tell them, listen, take your TV and your computer to the tallest place in your house and drop it out the window. It's like, that's so extreme. You know what, if it saves your life, and it saves your family, and it saves your kids, and it saves your relationships. It's not a crazy thing, right? Just a thought. Number three, be directed by the failures of others. Be directed by the failures of others. The Bible says in this passage of Scripture on several occasions that these things were written for, as an example for our benefit. He says in verse 18, Consider the people of Israel. Are not the, these those who ate, eat the sacrifices, participants in, 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 in the altar? What I do imply then that good... I'm not going to read on. You can read the rest of that. But he says ultimately the command is, is consider... Consider the people of God who have done this before. Listen, look at people who have gone before you. Your parents, your grandparents, the wisdom and the advice. Proverbs is full of wisdom and each case in Proverbs it says, listen to the instructions of those who have gone before you. Don't just read the Old Testament and be like, ah, that's no big deal. It's never gonna happen to us. We're in the New Testament. <laughs> it's like somehow God like changes and the Bible says he never changes. You might be in a season of extraordinary grace, but listen, if you're engulfed in sin and Satan is attaching you more and more to that sin, then your life is in danger of being put under a curse from that sin. If you're here with us this morning, I'm going to close with these thoughts. If you're here with us this morning and you're a believer in Christ but maybe you feel like you've lost God's blessing on your life. Maybe it's time to consider what are the things that you've attached yourself to? Or maybe a better way of saying that is maybe there are some things that Satan has attached to you. And those things are cursed. And maybe it's time for you to bring some honesty to the situation. Confess, forsake, and receive forgiveness from Christ. He will give it, and he will cleanse you. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, right? We love that part, but what else does it say? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, my my call to you, my encouragement to you is that God offers you a life full of great blessing. First of all, he offers you an eternity of blessing, that if you place your faith in him, you will be secure with him. You will be guaranteed eternal life with him. You will be guaranteed eternal blessings with him. If you will give your life to Christ, he will embrace you, forgive you, and renew you. But I want to tell you this as well. He, offer, he also offers you a blessed life. And that blessed life comes not just from receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior, but it comes from receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord. It comes from recognizing that he is the one who's in control and bowing your knee before him. The blessings that you can receive from the Lord's hand by giving your life to him are innumerable. 
but you may never experience them. You may go through life without those favor of God on your life and go straight to heaven because you've trusted him for your soul, but you've not trusted him for your life. Psalm 84, verse 11 and 12 says it this way. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for your help this morning. We pray that you would, first of all, help us to see and understand and recognize, Lord, first of all, who we are in Christ and that that secures us eternal blessing and eternal home with you, but also, Lord, to see Satan and his evil ways and, and even to see what Balaam did and, and what he understood about evil and how he understood how God works and how he knew that if the children of Israel would just walk in sin, that God would curse the sin and ultimately it would lead to seeming as if God had cursed the people. Help us, Lord, to walk in holiness, to walk in righteousness, to cleanse ourselves from the filth of this world and to walk in obedience to you. Please bless this remainder of this day. May it be glorified to you in Christ's name. Amen.